Okay. Tonight we're going to be engaging with question 100, and this is not the hundredth question we've been dealing with because uh, we kind of put things out of order just a little bit for some logistical reasons this week. Um, I'll be preaching question 100 on the proper mode of baptism, and then next week we'll return to the topic of baptism as Brother John's going to be preaching questions 98 and 99, which have to do with Baptism being strictly for those who have professed faith in Christ and particularly addressing the idea of whether or not it's appropriate to baptize infants. And so this week, um, we're going to talk about how is baptism rightly administered. The answer that we find in the Baptist Catechism uh, reads like this. Baptism is rightly administered by immersion or dipping the whole body of uh, of the party in water into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, according to Christ's institution and the practice of the apostles, and not by sprinkling or pouring of water or dipping some part of the body after the tradition of men. And so there are many practices from church to church where we might see variances from body to body. So uh, some examples of that is, how we lead in congregational singing here at First Family Church might look somewhat different from at other churches. Some churches don't use instrumentation. Some churches do. Some churches have a full band with drums. Some churches do not. Some churches use overhead projectors to put the words up. Some churches strictly only use hymnals from, from the, uh, the book in front of them. There's lots of different ways to do that, all meant to accomplish the same ends. How do we collect the offerings? Uh, Some churches just have a box in the back and you just put your offering in as you leave the building. Churches like ours, we pass the bag around and people are able to give. Some churches have gone completely to the online giving model. For a long time, we resisted that. We were a little bit skeptical of it just because it was a new thing. And we tend to be very slow to innovations because uh, those things can sometimes come with unforeseen problems. Uh, But some churches, they they do that 100% that way now. How many times do we pray during the service and for how long? You know, these are all things that might be slightly different from church to church. But baptism, being an ordinance issued by Jesus and being an ordinary means of grace, has been spoken about in some very specific ways in the scripture that God gives to us. And so we should observe this ordinance that God has given, this sacrament, according to the instruction of the scriptures as best we possibly can. Now, if you've spent most of your saved life in a Baptist church, the things we're going to talk about tonight might seem like they can be taken for granted. They're just sort of what you've always been taught or seen in practice. But there's a spectrum of viewpoints on this topic, some represented by faithful brothers in the faith, others presented by shaky believers who may believe some good things and believe some bad things, and still other modes of baptism. They're advocated by heretical teachers. So it is certainly worth our time to take these things to heart and to know well what the scripture teaches about them so that we might know how these things have played out in history and how they should play out in our church today. We baptize believers by immersion. And that means that upon the public profession of faith that an individual makes, a person who is determined to obey the word of God and in partaking of the ordinance of baptism is brought before a congregation is recognized as having saving faith in Jesus Christ, and then their whole body is briefly immersed underneath the water before being raised up again. This is done in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, and this process is done explicitly 
according to the scriptures that God has given to us that dictate how to do this in a way that glorifies his name. This is not, however, the only method commonly used to perform baptisms. Baptism by sprinkling is quite common in some circles. This is also sometimes known as baptism by aspersion. When an infant is sprinkled or when an adult who professes faith is sprinkled, uh, those who practice that believe that the waters are doing just enough in a symbolic washing mode to initiate true baptism in that person. And, and when asked why they do it that way, they might seek uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 for justification. We read in Ezekiel 36, which is pointing forward to the new covenant in the New Testament, starting in verse 25, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so some people look at this one verse and they say, well, this is enough justification for us to see that sprinkling is uh, an acceptable mode of baptism. It's more convenient and easy to enact. And so rather than go to the trouble of getting a big vat of water or putting somebody under the water, completely submerging them, they believe that sprinkling is sufficient. Others baptize by the pouring of water onto the head of the person to be baptized. This is often done in three successive pours, often in coordination with the idea that we are baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, this is linking usually to the idea that baptism somehow cleanses the person being baptized. Now, it might seem a small thing to sprinkle or to dip instead of baptizing through submersion in water. But we're going to learn this evening that baptizing in this specific way is a matter of obedience to mandate. It is a matter of honoring an illustration that God has given to us. And it is a matter of adherence to the established pattern that he has put before us that we can see throughout the history of the church. Now, is this as simple as looking at the definition of the original Greek word? Um, when I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, my pastor, Jim Meek, wore this phrase out. He said, the word baptizo is Greek, and it means to immerse. And he found a way to work that into just about every third sermon he ever preached. So I, if I learned anything from my pastor growing up, it was that baptism means immersion. So I heard it over and over again. And that's a common mantra that you hear in Southern Baptist churches. Um, it is true, the plain meaning of the word baptizo in the Greek is to immerse something, typically in water. And so here's some, uh, some uses of the word. Now, if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament writings, uh, which were completed by the time of Jesus, and they used those in the early church. The Septuagint in Exodus 15.10, when it says, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. It's talking about a boat being submerged in the sea and being lost. And that word for sank in the Septuagint is baptizo. In 2 Kings 5.14, also again in the Septuagint, uh, when we read of a man named Naaman who was a leper and sought to be, uh, to be healed, was sent to a prophet of God, and the prophet told him in verse 14 of 2 Kings 5, 
to go down and to cleanse himself. He says, so he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So the word there in the Septuagint is baptizo. We're talking about a full submersion. I don't imagine someone who is wanting to get rid of leprosy and is told the way that you do that is to obediently wash in the waters of the Jordan. I don't think he would just wash his hands or put a little sprinkle on his head. This is a person who's going to put his whole body into the water. He's going to wash thoroughly because he wants head to toe to be freed from this sickness. So the word baptizo does normally mean submerge in water. But in the semantic range of the root word baptizo, we also see that washing is a possibility in translating this word. We see one example of this in the New Testament in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 38. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and he reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he, Jesus, did not first wash before dinner. Now, interestingly enough, in the Greek, the word for wash there is a baptizene, which is of the same root, a baptizo. So in that instance, clearly the Pharisee is not astounded that Jesus didn't go in and take a full submersion bath. He's simply referring to a washing of hands. So the range of proper translation for the word baptizo can be used to identify a partial washing. And, and that doesn't mean that baptism by immersion is then not supported by the Bible. It just means that we need to take a more comprehensive approach to this argument. When we're contending for baptism by immersion, we have to look at several different uh, angles of understanding when we think about the sacrament. So one of those angles is the fact that the, the plainest meaning of the word is full submersion. Now, how did John the Baptist baptize? We find much of our information about the details of John's ministry in Matthew chapter 3. I'll read, from you in, uh, read for you in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Matthew gives us more details about John than most of the other books do. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now does it seem reasonable to understand John's baptisms to have happened in the manner of immersion? They went out to him in the wilderness. They met him at the Jordan River. It would seem like a long way to go and a lot of effort if all that John was doing was taking a little laver out of the water and sprinkling water on people or pouring a little jar of water onto the heads of these repentant sinners. It makes most sense to understand the natural use of this word baptizo to mean full immersion in the River Jordan. And if that's not specific enough for you in Matthew 3... Uh, we see more evidence in John 3.23 that the mode of baptism that John the Baptist used was immersion. In John 3, verse 23, it says, John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there 
and people were coming and being baptized. Why would you need plentiful water if the method of baptism was simply sprinkling or pouring water onto the head? Every indicator seems to point to the natural use of this word baptizo, that that John was submerging people into water, covering them completely, and then bringing them out of the water. This is the way that Jesus himself was baptized. Turn again to Matthew 3. We're going to draw two major points of notice from this passage. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And, he, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the first point I'd like to make comes from observing the kind of physical action that's being performed in this baptism. Jesus is being immersed in water. How do we know that? Well, it's because he is coming up out of the water in verse 16. If he was being sprinkled or if there was water being poured on his head, there would be no reason for him to have to come up out of the water. This is clearly an indication that he was below the water and is now ascending out of that water immersion after John put him under. And the second point that I'd like to make here we might ask the question, why does Jesus need to be baptized in the first place? John baptized for the remission of sins. John acknowledged that he himself had sinned. He says to Jesus here, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So in a way, John the baptizer was actually a little surprised that Jesus wanted him to baptize Jesus in the Jordan. But at the same time, he's very convinced that Jesus did not need baptism for any kind of washing of sin. Most of the explanations I have heard regarding why Jesus, who was without sin and did not need to be cleansed, why Jesus needed to be baptized, have settled on the same conclusion. Usually I hear, well, Jesus wanted it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that is taken to mean, now I know I don't need to be baptized, but just go ahead and do it. I'm setting an example for everyone who will need to be baptized after me. Now, that's not a terrible interpretation. Of course, Jesus' baptism does set a standard for how we are to baptize, but it leaves out an important detail that I just recently learned in a study from Dr. James Renahan on the Theology in Particular podcast, which um, is a series of great podcasts put out by International Reformed Baptist Seminary. Pastor Paul put the link to it in our uh, Slack app. So if you haven't listened to those, episodes 46 through 51 just give a wonderful, rich history on baptism and why we think the way that we do about baptism as Reformed Baptists. And so in that discussion, um, Dr. Renahan directs our attention to two more scriptures that shine light onto the reason that it was fitting for Jesus to be baptized by John the Baptist. Even though he had no sin, even though he needed no cleansing, He needed to be baptized, and here's why. The first scripture that is referred to is found in Hebrews. Hebrews is a persuasive sermon. It is a detailed argument for why and how 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the types and the shadows contained in the old covenant. Because Jesus has come, we cannot justify reverting back to Judaism as some of these Hebrew Christians were. They had started to experience a great persecution and they were beginning to become shaky in their faith and they thought it would be easier for us just to be Jews and to not accept this Jesus is Messiah mentality because when we do that, people want to put us in jail. They They want to persecute us. So this book of Hebrews is an argument against that against reverting to Judaism because Jesus is the realization of all of the promises that we find in the Old Covenant, including the promises and the shadows that are put forth in the office of the priesthood. Um, Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, Jesus was to serve as a high priest. He was to be the better prophet, the better priest, and the better king that all three of those offices had foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. And here we have the second office in light in Hebrews 2.17, that Jesus had to be made like us so that he could act as an intermediary between man and God. The second passage that was alluded to by Dr. Renahan is located in Leviticus, specifically in chapter 16, which speaks at length of the priest readying himself for the Day of Atonement, where he would enter into the holiest of holies to offer one of two goats prescribed for that annual ritual that was to wash away the unconfessed sins of Israel. Now, in the holiest of holies, the place where the presence of Yahweh was understood to dwell, no one was supposed to set foot. In order for this high priest to do it on this special occasion, he had to prepare himself to conduct that important ritual. And to do that, he had to go through a process of purification. In addition to offering a full bull as a personal sacrifice, as a sin offering to atone for his own sins so that he might have his transgressions washed away, the priest had to then go through a process of ritualistic cleansing where his entire body was to be washed. So in Leviticus 16, verses 4 through 5, it says, He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So in order to save us from our sin, What did Jesus have to do? He had to come and be born in the likeness of man. He had to be born under the law. And then he had to walk and live in such a way as his righteousness fulfilled the law of God. I know my brother is often fond of saying, we are saved by works, just not our own works, right? We're saved by the perfect works of Jesus Christ. And so in order for Jesus to fulfill the law, if he was going to function as our high priest, He needed to go through the ceremonial cleansing of his body, not because he was sinful, but because that was the law, so that he could function as a priest for us. In taking up his ministry as mediator and high priest, Jesus was baptized in part to fulfill the Levitical requirements of the law for those who served as priest to Israel. Now, John was not the only baptizer. Jesus and his disciples baptized people as well. We read in John 4, verses 1 through 2, 
Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he then left Judea and departed again for Galilee. That's John 4, 1 through 3. So baptism, we see there, was not just an intermediate practice only done by John the Baptist in preparation for the coming of Christ. Once Christ had come and started his earthly practice, baptisms continued. His own disciples were baptizing people as they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so baptism as a practice carried on into Jesus' ministry and was made an official ordinance or sacrament of the church just before his ascension. And and in that ascension, we read uh, the, the last command that God gave to his church before he rose Uh, In Matthew chapter 28, most of you are very familiar with this verse, uh, verses 19 through 20, or rather 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we see the imperative nature of baptism. Jesus does not talk about baptism as if it is a suggested benefit to the the believer. The idea of an unbaptized disciple of Christ is foreign to the scriptures. Those who were baptized, or those who were believing in Jesus Christ, the next step of that was naturally to be baptized in obedience to the Great Commission that we just read. And so this instrumental sacrament was used for the building of the body of Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the identifying of people with this body of believers who made up the New Testament church. Now, I don't want to step on my brother John's teaching for next week uh, where he's going to lay out for us the fact that only believers are to be baptized, but I did want to share just briefly from the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, and what it says in chapter 29, section 2. It says, Those who personally profess repentance towards God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So someone who was to profess faith in Christ would then be naturally pointed in the direction of baptism. It was the, the natural progression for someone who professed faith. The order that these commands are given to us in the Great Commission is not insignificant. Consider the order again that we see in verses 18 through 20 of Matthew 28. What happens first? We are to go and make disciples. Okay, We're to make disciples. We're to preach the gospel in such a way that it might rest upon the hearts of those who hear it. It might cause them to be grieved of their sin, that the Holy Spirit might show them their need for Jesus that they might be regenerated by that spirit and then confess their hope in Christ and and submit their lives to him. So we are to make disciples. The next step is baptize those disciples. Notice how that's not third. Through the history of the church, there have been times when people got this a little bit out of order and they would make disciples and they would insist on teaching with thoroughness systematic doctrines to those disciples before they allowed them to be baptized. But that's not actually the the pattern that is set in Scripture for us. We see people who are repentant of their sins, who are professing faith in Christ, 
and are baptized. And then after that baptism has been enacted, they then are set about to be taught the full counsel of God's command to us through Christ. So an individual does not need to know all that Jesus commanded in order to be baptized, but there does need to be a reasonable confidence that that person is a real disciple, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That triune formula carries weight as well. How are we to baptize? We're not just to baptize in the name of Jesus, right? Because who saves us, Christians? Is it just the Son who saves us? Salvation is properly a work of the triune God. Yahweh saves us. God sends the Son so that He might come to earth and take on flesh. Jesus experiences this embodiment, takes on a full nature of humanity to add to His divine nature. He walks in the precepts of God and fulfills the law. He goes and sacrifices Himself on the cross. He he lays His life down so that He might take it up again. He defeats sin. He defeats death. And the Holy Spirit is not an observant bystander, the Holy Spirit is absolutely tied in with this process of our salvation. The Spirit is that which convicts our heart of sin. The Spirit is that which wakes us up in regeneration. The Spirit then dwells with the believer as a seal and as an enlightenment to us that we might be able to read the Scriptures and understand them, that we might know that we are connected with our brothers and sisters in faith and we are bound to God forever through covenant. So, The triune formula that we baptize in is significant. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For it is the fullness of the triune God that we give credit to for our salvation. We have another story in the New Testament that helps us to understand the the mode of baptism that we are to adhere to. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. It's found in Acts chapter 8. And you can turn there now if you'd like to follow along. In this story, uh, Philip, who was one of the strong disciples, probably one of the first deacons. This is likely not the Philip that is uh, one of the 12 original apostles. Um, But this Philip is ministering in uh, Jerusalem area, and then the Spirit prompts him to go out into a wilderness area. And he goes not knowing what to expect. But on, on the way, he runs into a caravan, and there God gives him a very unique opportunity to preach the truth and impact someone's life for grace. In Acts chapter 8, verse 35, And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him, the Ethiopian eunuch, the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, notice the language there again, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So here we have in the story further support for the legitimacy of baptism by immersion. They both went down into the water, didn't they? We, we, we would be illogical to think that anything other than immersion in that water happened and that this baptismal candidate, the eunuch, came out of the water renewed and refreshed thanks to this sacrament. Now, this also raises another question about baptism. Is spontaneous baptism justified here? 
Um, spontaneum, spontaneous baptism is essentially baptizing somebody on the scene of their conversion. And while it's not usually my preference to do this, I do think because of this story, we do need to leave some room for spontaneous baptisms. Ideally, though, a believer is baptized by a local church so as to connect them to a body of believers, fellow Christians who also love their God, who will give them a context where they might be taught to obey all of the commands of Jesus. Remember, baptism is a precept. It is a, it's an imperative command given in the context of the Great Commission. So we make disciples, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then we teach them to obey all that is commanded. So ideally, you want to see somebody baptized in the church where they're going to be raised up in faith, where there are going to be people committed to connecting to them as they are professing to be connected to the body of Christ so that those other believers who have more maturity in the faith can lead them along. The appropriate times for a spontaneous baptism are likely very few and far between. Usually they revolve more around someone wanting a person of significance to baptize them or the desire to be baptized in some special place. You often hear people saying, I can't wait to go to the Holy Land because I'm going to save myself and be baptized in the River Jordan like Jesus was. That really comes more from our Western sensational experience obsession than it comes from a true understanding of what baptism really means. The waters of the Jordan are no more holy or beautiful that we might be baptized in them and receive some kind of a special blessing. I, guess I would say that the, and argue that the most special blessing you can have is to be baptized by those who are your brothers and sisters in faith and who will see you raised up in the Lord and will teach you to obey all the things that God has commanded to you. So is there room for spontaneous baptisms? You know, we have an example of precedence here that at least one example is shown, uh, but the normal mode of baptism uh, is often to walk alongside someone just long enough to know that their profession of faith is not just a spur-of-the-moment emotional decision, uh, that there seems to be a true profession in them, that they understand what baptism is about, so that that sacrament is administered to somebody who has no idea what they're doing. And usually you want that person connected right into the body of Christ so that they might be able to have accountability and might have a place where they can grow up in the truth. Also note here that all baptisms are to be done by someone presiding over the sacrament. No one baptizes themselves, okay? You can't baptize yourself any more than you can save yourself. Baptism being a passive act signifies the fact that regeneration is something that happens to you, not by you. And uh, I think that we would be wise to exhibit caution in who we allow to baptize other people as well. Uh, because of the fact that we are to baptize disciples and not just random people who want to be baptized, it is good to have the oversight of an elder, someone who's called to the, to the practice of, uh, of shepherding God's church to determine whether somebody is ready for baptism or not. It's especially good of little kids because sometimes it's hard to tell when a little kid is ready to be baptized, whether that faith is genuinely theirs or whether they are just hoping to please mom and dad or to do what their older brother or sister or friend did. And so it's good to have some discernment when it comes to baptizing people who want to come forward in obedience to this precept. The argument for baptism by immersion so far has two legs to stand on. We've talked about the meaning of the word, which is best understood as submersion underwater. We've talked about the precedence in scripture of those being baptized by full immersion in large bodies of water. And now I want to bring to you a third leg on which to prop this argument. 
the importance of the symbolism on display in the sacrament. The going down into the waters of baptism correlates with the old life of sin that we formerly lived being buried and put away. We are drowning the life of sin that we formerly lived in rebellion to God. So if you've got your Bible and you want to open up to Romans chapter 6, I'll try to be more kind and give you time to turn there if you are trying to thumb through in your word. I know it takes a little bit of time to bounce back and forth. We're looking at a lot of different scriptures tonight. But Romans chapter 6 is where we will camp out for the next uh, several minutes. So if you'd like to turn there. Starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This idea of of baptism symbolizing our death and burial is reinforced again in Colossians 2.12. We're not going to go there, but if you'd like to look it up later, Paul says essentially the same thing in an argument to the Colossian church. Baptism is, in a sense, a spiritual reenactment of what has occurred within us. This concept of being born again as a new believer also contains with it the death of our old self, a death to the life of rebellion that we used to live, happily ignorant to the power of the gospel. Romans 6 verses 8 through 11 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It always grieves me when I see a church conducting baptisms. And they're doing it by immersion, which is good. But they're doing it in such rapid fashion and with such little explanation that the power of the what we're being able to see through this act, this dramatization of someone's rebirth is completely lost on the audience. It just becomes a a vaguely religious act that someone is going through that becomes a landmark in their life. But what does it actually mean? We need to understand that baptism is a picture of the old self that we used to live in opposition to the law of God being laid to rest and put to death. It, It does not identify who we are any longer because now We have been raised with Christ. We are a new creation. And so that life of rebellion is laid to rest. It is buried. This is in part what we were talking about this morning in the passage in Galatians 6. That though the grace of God abounds in the new covenant, allowing us to reap what Christ has sown, that doesn't in any way give us an easy excuse to dwell in sin. Sin is characteristic of the old man, the rebel to God's kingdom that we used to be. But it is not characteristic of the new man, the person we are now that we have been raised in Christ. Paul expands on this a little bit in Ephesians 4. In verse 19 of Ephesians 4, he says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former man of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Those who heard this preached from the pen of Paul, I guarantee you, immediately thought of their baptism when they read that. We should think often of our baptism, of the fact that God has waken us up to new life. And in doing that, he has called us to this sacrament through which we have identified ourselves with him forever and with the church that he is building on this earth. That the old person that we were is now dead and gone. And that if we insist on walking in the patterns of the old life, it's like we're putting on a dead skin over ourselves, a false representation of who we are because that's not our person or character anymore. The raising out of the waters of baptism correlates with the resurrected, the resurrected Jesus Christ rising triumphant from his tomb. This is powerful imagery of the newness of life that we have through faith in Christ. Remember, waters of baptism don't give you new life. Spirit baptism gives you new life. Water baptism is a picture of the spirit baptism. The immersion in the Holy Spirit, not the sprinkling or the pouring out of the Spirit, but the immersion of the Holy Spirit that drenches us and and, and surrounds us with the goodness of God. That is characteristic of our true regeneration. Can sprinkling of water give us this kind of imagery, friends? It cannot. You don't get the imagery of being dead to your old life if you're simply sprinkled with water. Can you get it through pouring? You cannot. And so while the sacrament of baptism has a dynamic quality to it, it pictures the death and the burial of the old simple self and that that believer being raised to a newness of life, it also pictures the idea of, of Christ cleansing us from our iniquity and sin and making us holy before him. Pouring and sprinkling only looks at half of the imagery. And so it carries half the power that true biblical baptism by immersion can carry. Now, the argument might be made that baptism is a symbolic washing away of one's sins. And to a degree, that is true. It's a two-sided dynamic image. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, we read, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In fact, Brother John is going to talk next week about the fact that New Testament baptism is not the replacement for Old Testament circumcision. The stronger argument is that New Testament baptism is better understood as a continuation and a fulfillment of the shadows and types of Old Testament ceremonial washings that had to be performed to make a person clean so that they could enter again into the presence and worship of Yahweh. But the imagery of death and new life is more accurately the cleansing that we are in need of, isn't it? Not a partial cleansing that might need to be done again later when we get more dirt on us. No, baptism is only necessary once because it signifies that we are not what we were before. We are no longer slaves to sin because we've been raised with Jesus. Death and sin no longer have any sway over us. They have lost their sting. You might ask yourself, where did the sprinkling, where did the pouring come from? Historically, we're not entirely certain, but we do have lots of evidence that baptism by immersion was largely practiced until about the time of the Reformation or shortly afterwards. 
the Didache, which is an early document, one of the earliest documents we have that speaks of church practice, speaks of immersion as being the proper mode of baptism. Now, in the Didache, there is an exception made to this. If a person was not physically able to get into and out of water, then three ceremonial pourings over the head of that individual would be sufficient for them to have been considered baptized. And we believe that in the Didache, this exceptional clause then opened the door for people to make that eventually a rule. And that that rule perhaps was even morphed into sprinkling because of practical reasons. Especially as the practice of infant baptism, which is not originally seen in the New Testament, but begins to pick up steam after the 2nd and 3rd centuries, when infant baptism became a practice in the church, and uh, we're going to hear about that next week, you had some churches that were in very cold climates hesitant to put a freshly born baby into the submersion waters uh, of baptism because of the fact that they believed it could cause them to be susceptible to colds and to sickness, and infant mortality rates were much higher back then. So it is believed that because of infant baptism, in part, sprinkling became uh, seen by the church as an acceptable substitute. But I pray that tonight, as we have looked at the full counsel of Scripture, and we've seen this three-pronged argument, that you would be able to leave here tonight with great confidence that as Baptists, we're approaching this sacrament in a way that is not only biblically acceptable, but is the mandate of Scripture and gives us the fullest picture of the power of what Christ has done in saving us and connecting us to His church so that we might live and learn all that He has commanded us to do and obey Him in such a way that He's glorified in our new lives. All right, I'd like to open it up for time of discussion. Does anybody have any questions or contentions with what was said tonight? Jonathan. I really like the imagery part that you did. That was really golden to me. I've had some really deep battles with some of my Presbyterian friends, um, especially one who's, a, who's an elder. He, uh, I think the ones, those arguments that you made at the end were ones that I found him kind of deferring. And, you know, those were the ones where it would end up the conversation would be like, well, just go read this book. And I'm like, well, how about you answer my question? It's like, but some of the ones I think, I believe everything you said tonight. I think as Baptists, I think just to kind of make us aware of some of the counterattacks that they take. You had said something earlier about uh, the word, oh man, the, the baptism. I think it was. Uh, Baptizo. Right. And then. Um, hey, Baptiste. Yes, so there's another word, and it's called lotron. Uh, um, and that one is in Titus. It's also in Ephesians 5, where it talks about the washing of the water. Okay. You know, husbands uh, love your wives as Christ loves the church, and I say it's the washing of the water of the word. And then there's the imagery of how we're regenerated with the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. They'll rest heavy on that, and so we got to be aware of that's one they'll come back with, and then... They tend to counterattack us. Um, so you're talking about passages that are not explicitly baptism. Yes. Right? Because Ephesians yes. 5 is not baptize your wives. It's wash them in the water of the word. Right. But they'll, they'll which is a cleansing illusion. Right? The, the cleansing. They'll use that cleansing aspect to say, see, you know, this this imagery here of being cleansed in the word yeah. is 
can be used as imagery as the mode of baptism. I don't buy it. I would say that falls on its face because husbands are not called to baptize their wives. And so, that, you know, are we called to wash one another? Yes. We should seek the cleanliness of our brothers and sisters in faith. But if you're going to use that as an argument for baptism, I think you don't have really much of a leg to stand on. The Titus one, they'll lean a little heavier on. Okay. Because that one does... Do you know what that reference is? I didn't... I didn't say Titus 3.5. 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Right? So they'll use that low, that low trial passage okay. to say, see... You Baptists think you guys need to have imagery down, right? And so I get where they're coming from. I still don't buy it because they don't, they don't address the passages. That it's talking about know. spirit baptism, right? Because washing of regeneration, you don't get regenerated when you come into the tub. I agree. <laughs> and I think the one you gave, like about the Colossians passage and then, you know, the buried with the buried with the baptism. Yeah. It's like the Romans 6 yeah. passage, you know, that, that's clearly spirit baptism, right? Amen. But we're to do it. The imagery, you know, the way baptism is. Was, uh, yeah. The other one is they'll accuse us of inductive, uh, inductive reasoning fallacies when we go along the lines of the Matthew 3 passage. They'll say, well, yeah, there was much water there, but it doesn't really mean anything because he could have just stood in the water and got bored. So I'm like, I don't buy that. But they'll say, you're taking, you're arguing from silence, you're taking. What isn't explicit with inductive reason you're drawing. Presbyterians out. are going to argue that. No, I, <laughs> that's one of their favorite methods of arguing when it comes to infant baptism. So, right. which is ironic there. But um, when people are going, you don't go into a river so that someone can pour some water on your head. It just why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense at all. It makes more sense that you would be dipped in the water like the Naaman passage that I spoke about. When you're, in, you're a leper and someone tells you, you go wash ceremonially in the water, you're putting your whole body in that water. You're not leaving a bit of yourself out because you want that leprosy gone. So it is dipped. It is immersed in the water. Well, you know, they have no leg to stand on. So they like to, they, they, they lean heavy on ambiguity. Yeah. They'll say, well, when we say there's no emphasis of an infant baptized, yeah. they'll say, well, there's no command not to baptize. And I'm like, dude, that's weak, right? Yeah. <laughs> Paul, you know. How that, they, you should call them on the RPW if they say that because they pride themselves in the regular principle of worship. And if they're going to say, well, there's no command not to, that's normative. That's, that's normative, the definition yeah. of normative principle, which they, their confessions all reject. Yeah. Right? So I, right. if they said, that's somebody reaching for straws at that point. They're trying to say that it's not Amen. And just to clarify, regular principle of worship is an approach to practice where you basically only worship the Lord in the ways he's told you to worship him. Some people follow something called the normative principle of worship, which means that if the Bible doesn't say you can't do it, then you're free to do it. And people who are confessional typically see the great danger in that. It opens the door to a lot of really weird kind of worship where people are offering strange gifts to the Lord that he never intended to take on. So that's the difference between those two things. And it just shows an inconsistency there. Go ahead. So I was watching a movie about the last week, and there's a scene where he's um, wandering with a group of folks through the wilderness, and he comes across a couple who has recently lost their baby, and the woman is completely distraught because... She wasn't able to have her child baptized because she didn't make an offering to the church, so the pastor denied the baptism, and the baby died before the baptism. 
And then she was told that this baby, because it wasn't safe, would forever be flying as a, as a firefly or a dragonfly or something for the rest of his life. Anyways, so she's distraught. And, and so where did this concept come that, you know, babies that are not baptized before they die, you know, basically are, are lost in whether they go to hell or wandering yeah. throughout the world? Or This is an error that is primarily found in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church to a degree. And uh, uh, John's going to talk about that at length next week. So if you have the patience to wait till next week, because if I went and got into it today, I might step on a whole bunch of the stuff he's supposed to preach. And I hate to do that as a preacher. I know that sometimes if somebody, you know, if it, it all gets unpacked before I can unpack it, then it kind of hurts the argument. And it would be better to see that in its extensive laid out forms. And you can see why we don't practice infant baptism. Now, just to be clear, uh, the fact that we don't see baptism the same as like our Presbyterian brothers or our Lutheran brothers, that doesn't mean that we don't believe they're believers. It doesn't mean that we need to be hostile towards them. It just means that when we engage with them, we need to have good reasons why we think differently and practice differently in this regard. And I think that we think clearly about this in, in, in a way that the scripture shows us there's a weakness in the argument for pedo-baptism. And, and it covenantally leads to a lot of errors too, which John's going to get into. But... As you can see just by the story itself, you can see the superstitious sort of extra-biblical thought that goes into a, a thinking that way. And when you, when you put the church's traditions on the same pedestal as the scripture, you set yourself up for a lot of hurt. And sadly, you know, a lot of people who are in the Roman Catholic tradition have been taught that God's will is what the church says God's will is. Right. And often that's direct opposition to what the scripture clearly teaches about the will of God. So we as Baptists, we believe the word over tradition every time. We don't think that the tradition of the church is worthless, but it, it clearly is not meant to be the authoritative standard by which we live and understand our relationship with God to be defined. So, but Wycliffe, good story, good dude. Uh, translated the Bible into English before it was cool, right? <laughs> Other questions or comments before we wrap up? All right. Again, if, if, um, if you haven't checked it out. Oh, go ahead. Noelle's got a question. Acts 8. Yeah. Right. Which uh, translation are you working out of? I have the LSV. Okay. Yeah, it's not in the ESV. That must be um, a majority text edition. So I probably would not hang my whole defense upon that that piece of scripture if it's not in the the oldest texts. Um, it's in the TR too. It's in the TR, text receptus. Okay. Yeah, still, it, it's good to see that that's there, but I don't think you have to go there to get that as well. I think that the order of the Great Commission lends to that solid understanding that you are to make disciples and then baptize them. Uh, make doesn't mean give birth to. <laughs> Making disciples means you preach the gospel and you let the Spirit do its work. And when those people come forth in a profession, that's when baptism is appropriate. 
So that's one of the dangers of spontaneous baptisms. And I've seen some, some uh, really irresponsible, like revival kind of activities where the word is preached and a bunch of people come down in mass and they have a little pool set and immediately take them over and they baptize them and they don't know anything about these people. They're not, they're not clear on their background or their text uh, or the, the context of their salvation and they don't know where they're going to go after their baptism. I think that's an irresponsible way of applying what is supposed to be a very meaningful and powerful sacrament that should give us grace and should solidify us as a person who is connected to the church of God. So be cautious about that. But again, if we see the eunuch getting baptized, I think we shouldn't completely eliminate the, the possibility that sometimes that might be appropriate. Yeah. All right. Question. Christine. I don't know how to ask this. I asked Pastor Paul about this, and I'm still confused. Okay. Why was John the Baptist not baptized? Okay, that's a good question. Why was John the Baptist not baptized? I don't. He still had salvation, right? Right, because baptism is not essential for salvation. It is the natural progression. When you get saved, you should be baptized. But it is not absolutely necessary for salvation. And the greatest, the greatest evidence that we have of this is when Jesus is on the cross and he is being crucified and he has two thieves next to him. And one thief is mocking him and saying, if you are who you say you are, call down a legion of angels, have them take you off this cross and save us too while you're at it. This guy apparently does not know how to win somebody over, right? The other thief reprimands him. He gets tired of hearing it and he says, this man is who he says he is. Jesus turns to him and upon that brief and what we'd say primitive profession of faith, Jesus knows that this man truly does believe in him. And he looks at him and he says, you will be with me. I will see you in paradise today. So if this man who's just made a profession of faith and was before that living a life of abject sin and rebellion to God's law, if he's made a profession of faith and has clearly had zero opportunity to be baptized, has not touched the baptismal waters and yet will be in paradise with Jesus in heaven, we can see there that there is not something special about the baptismal waters that ensures your salvation or that regenerates you. That, that true baptism, the, the, the core of baptism is the baptism, the immersion of the Holy Spirit, which happens when Christ changes our heart. That happens in a spiritual sense. And so physical baptism, the sacrament of baptism, is an outward expression of what God has already done inwardly to us. So God didn't change I don't know why you would think that. If his heart was changed, the fact that he didn't get baptized, first of all, we don't know that he didn't get baptized. But scripture doesn't say that. Doesn't say that he did. But scripture doesn't say that any of the disciples got baptized either, did it? I don't think that it does. I don't think so. You don't have to have the scripture explicitly saying that every member of the team got baptized for it to have happened. Um, and some things are just assumed. So maybe John the Baptizer was baptized. We don't know. Um, maybe he wasn't because he did say, I should be baptized by you. But that could have meant that you are superior to me. And if we're talking about somebody needing to be cleaned out of the two of us, it's me, not you. That could have been what he was talking about. So we, we need to be cautious. I know coming from a Roman Catholic background, there's a tendency to kind of fall back into a mode of thinking where that baptism somehow saves you. And that's what happened with the Whitcliffe situation that you're talking about, Lottie, that those individuals thought that the baptism was somehow salvific. 
Um, we also can see, if you study carefully the history of the church, that because baptism is described as a means of grace to the church, that some people felt that it had a special cleansing effect. And so for a, a, a good chunk of church history, people would delay their baptisms until they thought they were going to die and then get baptized because they thought it would have a greater impact. They would enter into heaven more pure and clean than they would otherwise if they got baptized early and then had all this time to accumulate debt and sin, which is a wrong way of thinking about things. Uh, but I think we have the, the Roman Catholic doctrines, which are confusing and lean towards law instead of justification by faith. We have those to thank for that kind of confusion. So that's why things like this need to be preached in clarity so that we don't carry those kinds of confusion in, in the world today, that we can stop people who are thinking that way and, and show them from Scripture why baptism needs to be understood as God intended it to be understood, as an outward expression of what Christ has already done inwardly in your heart, as something that we do in obedience to Him. We shouldn't be resistant to it. But if there is somebody who doesn't have a chance to get baptized and they die, it's not going to preclude them from the kingdom and it's not going to make them less holy in the eyes of the Lord God. All right. Well, thank you everyone for coming tonight. We appreciate being able to spend this time together. Great to have a good turnout and have some good interactions. The Q&A time is some of my favorite time uh, because it really helps us to flesh out what's on your hearts and your minds about this. We try to anticipate the needs of our congregation as we prepare our sermons. We're prayerfully asking God to insert into these sermons the things that our people need to hear so that our flock will get stronger. But sometimes we just don't see those things. And for this Q&A to happen gives you the opportunity to really be taught where you need to be taught. So thank you for being willing to speak up and to ask a question that might even be on several other people's hearts. It's a benefit to them to hear the answers, and it's a benefit for us to see what's really on your hearts and your minds. So continue to engage. We encourage that. We love it, and we're grateful for the opportunity. Even if we don't have answers to every question that you ask, we love to be able to interact with you in these ways because it helps you to become stronger, and it helps us to be better ministers to your heart. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your grace. We know that you are holy and pure. Uh, to understand that you are our perfect high priest and that you have completely fulfilled the law is such a great comfort to us. Help us to take confidence in your strength and in your victory. I pray, God, that you would keep us a humble people, that our baptism would be to us a landmark in our life where we, we pu publicly display to people that our faith is not in our works. It's not... In our religious practice, our faith is in you, Jesus. And so help us to stand on that firm foundation of your victory. We love you, and more importantly, we're loved by you. Your love is so much better than ours. So help us to rejoice in that and be thankful for it. We pray it all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.